We're in Revelation chapter 2, looking at uh, the third church in the series of seven, Pergamum. And Pergamum is a city in Western Asia. I'm going to read this from Erdman's this morning. Um, located 15 miles from the Aegean Sea, 70 miles north of Smyrna, Pergamum was famous and important, was a famous and important city that enjoyed a rich history from the third century BC to the fourth century AD. Its Acropolis was located strategically atop a steep, a steep cliff, nearly 1,300 feet above the Caicos River. That's a picture of it right there. Still in existence today. Giving it an excellent view of the Bay of Lesbos. Ancient Greek kingdoms based their power here as a means of controlling vast regions of prominence as a major military and political center. With the conquest of Alexander the Great, some 334 years before Christ, Pergamum rose in prominence as a major military and political center. Rome conquered the area 133 BC. Pergamum became the chief city of Asia, the location of the beginnings of the imperial cult in the east, and a continued center of intellectual and economic influence. In 88 BC, Pergamum joined a revolt against Rome, prompting Antony to give his beloved library to rival Alexandria. Since 350, Pergamum was also known for its worship of Asclepios. So yesterday, uh, we're in town and I see an ambulance go by. Anybody recognize that? Anybody know what that is? Staff of Hermes. Nope. Close. The staff of Hermes has two snakes intertwining it. This is the rod of Asclepios. Didn't realize that. You see it on ambulances everywhere, hospitals. You know who Asclepios was? It's the god of healthcare. Pergamos. Pergamum was also known for its worship, aside of from Caesar, which we'll talk about, but it was known for its worship of Asclepios, god of healthcare, the serpent god of healing, he was known as. Could not help but think about that in light of our current context. We talked about it in Bible study this morning. What have we done in the name of reproductive health care? In the last 47 years in our country, some 63 million babies have been slaughtered on that altar. And here we have the serpent God of healing who many came to visit, came to visit and, and would sleep in the temple in the hopes, hopes that the God of health care would rescue them and, and save them from poor health. When John wrote the book of Revelation, Pergamum had been a major seat of government for 400 years. Evidence of the Jewish community can be found in literary sources. The Christian church probably developed here during Paul's two-year stay in Ephesus. Examples of the city's magnificence are its 40-foot-high altar to Zeus, who's made a, a, a comeback in some of our... Um, hero movies of, of late. So there's a 40-foot high altar to Zeus, numerous temples, theater, enlarged agora or open public meeting space, and library. 200,000 scrolls. This was a city um, that found that education and thought incredibly important. It was an intellectual center in antiquity little bit of history and context from Erdman's Dictionary for the Bible. Um, important context for us to understand because we see there's a theme in this letter from Christ to the church at Pergamum, and we see Jesus in multiple occasions refer to himself as the one with a two-edged sword. It's incredibly important. And so we see this introduction. It goes back to chapter 1, verse 16, in which we read, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, a sharp two-edged sword, 
and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This again is a picture, a pictorial allusion back to the Old Testament and emphasizes Christ's authority to judge. Talked about this in, in our Bible study this morning. Incredibly important. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Christ is stating and restating for the church at Pergamum his right and authority as judge and king. Remember chapter one, we spent a great deal of time looking at Christ establishing himself as king over not just the church, but his kingdom and beyond. This is important in the context that we're looking at this letter. In in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. We looked at 1 Samuel chapter 8, or was it 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel chapter 8, sorry. This morning, talking about David having completing or having completed his conquest and God fulfilling his promise to grow his kingdom. So some amazing overlap there. But in Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Who is this talking about, by the way? Christ. Yes, the Messiah. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this is imagery that takes us back in scripture to remind the church in Pergamum who Christ is and who it is that is addressing them with the authority that he has. And there's going to be a point of both encouragement and a point of of challenge or admonition as we find this letter to the church of Pergamum. This church is one of the multiple churches that has both good or, or things of commendation to address, but also things that Christ has cause against. And I was thinking about this, and it's it's an important question that we should ask ourselves. If, if Jesus sent a letter to each one of us as fathers and husbands to our homes, what would it say? You ever thought about that? Think about it. We, we were... We're looking at these seven churches as these churches in Asia Minor, and yes, they are. But it is to those that hear. It is written to those that have an ear to hear. If Christ were writing a letter to us as the heads of our homes that that make up the collective body of of this church, what would it say? What would he tell us? It's a challenging question. Um, and one that should make us introspective. His word is the judge of all matters, seen and unseen. Isaiah reminds us of that. He does not judge based on what he sees. We we have a front that we tend to put on for each other, don't we? People see our best sides, our dress up, if you will, on Sunday mornings, and we often base our assessment of people their character and what they truly are by what, what we see. Jesus is not that way. He goes beyond what is seen to what is unseen. And so turn with me to Hebrews chapter four, a passage that you're very well familiar with. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than what? The two-edged sword. Yes piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Think about the sword itself for just a second as as a weapon. 
we don't typically use swords in our current context. We, we think of firearms, right? Um, if I were to say, what is a rifle for? We would say long, long range battle, correct? What is a handgun for? Close range battles. So in those days, they had spears, right? The spear was typically to be thrown. They had arrows, bows, long range battles. So where is a sword used in terms of combat? When the enemy is on top of you, when it truly matters, God's word is our sword. In close hand-to-hand combat, if you will. And what does God's word do for us? Well, it is clarifying. Um, John Gill, one of my favorite commentators, as you guys know, I repeat him ad nauseum. He says this on Hebrews chapter 4. The apostle seems here to have respect to the several names with which the soul of man is called by the Jews. That is soul, spirit, and breath. The latter of these breath, they say, dwells between the other two. That is soul and spirit. Some, of the, some by the soul understand the natural and unregenerate part of man. And by the spirit, the renewed and regenerate part, which through sometimes are not easily distinguished by men. Now, that's a fair point that Gil brings up, because how do we know that a person is regenerate? What? We look on the inside of them and we see it? How do we know? I would love to think that everybody sitting here this morning has been born again of the spirit of God. But how do we know that? We can be judges of fruit. But beyond that, yet, who sees it? Who sees? Gil continues, he says, these are not easily distinguished by men, but yet they are by Christ. Others think the soul designs the inferior faculties, the affections, and the spirit, the superior ones the spirit or the mind and the understanding. But the apostle's meaning seems to be this, that whereas the soul and spirit are invisible, the joints and the marrow. Now, this was long before x-rays ever came to be. In writing in, in, uh, in, in the context of Paul in Hebrews, they didn't have x-rays today. So when Paul mentions joints and marrow, who could see it? You see, you see his pattern here. He's, he's, he's talking about things that we cannot see with the naked eye. And everything that is not to be able to be observed by us with our faculties, our understanding, our wisdom, our eyesight, God sees it all. He says, the word reaches the most secret and hidden things of men and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Christ knows what is in man. He is the searcher of the hearts, the trier of the reins of the children of men. And this will be more apparent at the last day when he will make manifest the counsels of the heart and will critically inquire and accurately judge of them. We don't even know our own intentions, do we? Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who does it deceive? Does your heart deceive me? Whose heart is in danger of deceiving me? Mine. Mine. Because I would like to think of myself that my motives and the intents of my heart are as pure as the driven snow. Wouldn't I? And you would like to think the same thing of yours. We don't even know the deep, dark recesses of our own hearts, but God does. And he sees them and he can dice and, and, and separate them and accurately judge them all. His word will be and is the judge of all men, both the wicked outside and inside the church. Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down who? The nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This goes right back to Isaiah chapter 11. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So we will see next week. We're not going to look at it this week, but God warns the church in Pergamum because there are things that are not right within that body. And he says, repent or else what? I will come and make war with those that are disobedient with the sword of my mouth. What God is telling the church in Pergamum, elders, leadership, if you're not going to deal with sin, I will come deal with it for you. That's exactly what he's warning the church in Pergamum regarding um, their allowance of idolatry within the church and false teaching. So what does that tell us? There is no, it should tell us this. I, I hope you're listening. There is no safe harbor within the walls of this church that will keep you from being judged by God. You may have Christian parents, parents that love you desperately and want you to believe and understand and see the gospel. You have no safe haven in a Christian family from the judgment of God. It will find everyone. I'm thinking about Exodus chapter 12. We find Israel, and we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. We find Israel. The last plague, you remember what it was? God says to Israel, take a lamb and kill it. Apply the blood to the doorposts. Why? Because the death angel is coming to Egypt. And what happened with the death angel after it went to Egypt? They went to the land of Goshen, and any that had not applied the blood to the doorpost and the lintel of the door, the death angel came to their house, and what did it do? It took their firstborn, whether they were Egyptian or Israelite. There is no safe harbor or escape from the judgment of God within the walls of the family or the church. Hear that, please. Where the blood was not applied, death reigned, and families breathed. His word will be judge of all men, both the wicked outside and inside the church. Judgment must begin where? Anybody? Where does judgment begin according to God? Household of God. God is jealous of his people. And if the church in Pergamum would not deal with its sin, he was going to deal with it for them. The sword is a reoccurring theme in the letter to the church of Pergamum, and the use is parabolic, taking us back to the use of parables. And the wording is important because it both warns and simultaneously it judges. There's a warning to those that have ear to hear. Who are those? The warning is for people that are listening. Who are listening? Jesus said, my sheep, what? Hear my voice and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. There are those that are pretenders. There are wolves in sheep's, clo sheep's clothing. They look just like a sheep. To this, it is a warning to them. And it's an important question to ask. Why does scripture use parables? And this is another parable here. We see Jesus with a sword protruding from his mouth. If we look in, back in, in Revelation chapter 1 and we see this vision of him standing before the lampstands. And I remember the first message that I ever preached and I was 15 years old and dad made me preach. It was on Isaiah chapter 1. And, and the, the reminder that the ox and the donkey had better knowledge and understanding than Israel did of God. That was the essence of the teaching of Isaiah chapter 1. And Isaiah lays it out very clearly. And then as you get further into the message of Isaiah, it goes to darker and darker parables. Things that are not easily understood. And at the end of the book of Isaiah, we find a declaration about them. They, they do not hear. They will not hear. And so the message goes to parables. 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, he told them another parable, meaning Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. And this is what we're talking about this morning. We are talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is, he's referencing back to David, by the way, there, not Isaiah. And then it says in verse 36, that he left the crowds and went into the house and his, his disciples came into him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Why didn't Jesus just make it plain to the crowds like he did to his disciples? Surely the end goal is clarity to the hearer, right? We, We talked Wednesday night about witnessing and and sharing our testimonies and we always go back to at least many many times we do if only i could have said it clearer if i was more clear in my presentation of the gospel surely they would have believed no why did jesus use parables well this isn't popular this is not politically correct but guess what It wasn't for everyone to see and hear. For some people, when Jesus spoke his word to them, it was a pronouncement of judgment, not a pronouncement of clarity so that they would see and understand and believe. It's the truth. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 13, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus very plainly, again, to his disciples, concisely. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing They do not see and hearing. They do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. that says you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they have been barely, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you see what's going on here? There are people that can sit in these rows every single week and hear the word of God preached and never hear it. Never hear it. Their ears are dull. Yes, they have two ears, two of these fleshy things with whatever's in them. Cartilage. Cartilage, thank you. (laughs) And you can hear the words. And I can be crystal clear in the words that I say or not. But, But hear this. If you are listening to the teaching and the preaching of God's word and it is going nowhere with you, I don't know this in your specific personal case, but you may very well be under the judgment of God. 
That's how serious it is. Why do you use parables? Because Jesus was judging them. He is the righteous judge. You say he could have been clear. Yes, he could have. And the only reason the disciples understood was not because they were smarter. They were fishermen. Not that there's anything wrong with fishing. But guess what? They weren't the the intellectual elites in the crowds that Jesus was teaching. But Jesus told them, you understand because I gave it to you to understand. I gave it to you. It's called grace. Why do we understand? Why have we repented? Why have we believed? Because we're smarter? No, because God's grace has opened our eyes. And for those that don't see and don't hear, they're under judgment. And so we see, again, a picture in the book of Revelation, the parabolic language that that John uses here, Jesus giving to John to talk to the seven churches. Why is Jesus talking to the seven churches in parables? I'm coming to you with the sword out of my mouth. Why is he giving that to the church of Pergamos? Because some of them would hear and some of them were about to be under his judgment. So the imagery of the sword is incredibly important. Think about the context of the church in Pergamos when Jesus says, I am coming to you with a sword from my mouth. What do they know of the sword? What does Pergamum know of the sword? This is very, very plain imagery. And if you're talking to the church, the elders at Pergamum, especially as as we understand it, that one of them was martyred. Who martyred him? When Jesus talks about coming to them with the sword of his mouth, what immediately should come to their minds? If you were sitting in their congregation, the same thing would come to your mind. Who? Come on. I know you guys are awake. Who would they think of in their current context? Yes, Rome. We think of Rome and the sword. Where where does our mind go? Anybody? Come on, three guesses and two don't count. What chapter in the book of Romans? Romans 13. Does for me. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for what? He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, the avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, there's just one major disconnect for me with Romans chapter 13. That government that Paul is describing is not the Roman government because the Roman government is crucifying, murdering saints by the thousands. Because why? They won't submit to them. They won't say Caesar is Lord. So what is it? What's going on here? Is Paul telling the church, and as we, and it's the same context that we find these that are that are hearing it, the, the churches that the seven letters are written to, are they failing as Christians because they're not bending the knee to Caesar? So why the disconnect? Here it is, guys. Romans 13 is not a picture of what Rome was, but of what Rome ought to have been. Do you see that? God says, obey Rome as Rome obeys me. If if Caesar says to you, I am Lord, you must bow to me. What do we do then? We have convoluted this in the American context. And there are are some wimpy pastors that if, if the church 
If Pergamos had believed how they interpret Romans 13, they would have bowed the knee to Caesar. And, and many of these pastors are afraid of losing their 501c3 status. So they'll say, whatever the government says, we follow. Missing the point here. Romans 13 is, a, is, is describing the government as God ordained it. Do you know what was going on with the Roman government? They were in disobedience to God. When Caesar and Domitian and Nero crucified and, and, and martyred saints, were they in obedience to God? No. And, and here we have Jesus coming to the church of Pergamum and saying, I am the one who wields the sword. I am sovereign over the despots of Rome. If the saints in John's day had interpreted Romans 13 as many in the American church do today, they would have bowed the knee to Caesar. Just like many in our churches are doing now. Polycarp would have bowed the knee. He never would have said to his, his executioners, when you burn me at the stake, don't even bother tying me or nailing me to the spike because I'm not moving. Never, he would have never said that. We're in a very similar place today. Christians have lived for 200 plus years in concurrence with our government because the government, based on its founding principles, is friendly to Christians. We have been incredibly blessed in that regard. But those days are passing. We celebrated this week as an awful law was stricken down. By the way, just so everybody knows, the state of North Carolina, nothing changed. There are babies that are going to die tomorrow in abortion clinics in the state of North Carolina. And what grieved me about the events of Friday is there were people rightfully celebrating the end of this horrific law that allowed 63 million babies to be slaughtered in our country. Where is our national repentance for that? Where is our national repentance? It does us no good to spike the football on somebody that lost. What America should be doing is, is driven to its knees, calling out to God for God to forgive us for the barbarism that we have shown to the unborn in the wombs of our women across this country. That's what we should be doing. We should be asking God to have mercy on us and forgive us. Yes, it's great that the law of the land came back into comportment with God's, with God's word. That's excellent. That's wonderful. But we're not there yet. And for the church in Pergamum, as they're being crushed by Rome, They need to know that Christ's kingdom is superior over Rome. That's what will keep them. That's what will keep Antipas, who we'll talk about in just a minute, from bowing and bending his knee. But here's what we we need to understand. Don't confuse your sovereign. Don't confuse your sovereign. Who is our God? The question for the church in Pergamos was, who is your sovereign? And I would submit to you this morning, it's the same question for you and I. Who is our God? Daniel, as he confronts Nebuchadnezzar, and I was thinking about this as I was reading it. Daniel chapter 2, there's a vision that Nebuchadnezzar has of this great statue made of different components from the head all the way down to the feet. And here is Daniel, who goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you're the head, and you're about to be smashed to smithereens. Can you imagine the intestinal fortitude it took for that man to stand in front of the most powerful man on the face of the earth and said, God's kingdom is going to smash you to smithereens? Could you have done that? Talk about guts. But Daniel tells him the truth about the dream. And it starts with the image mighty and exceeding in, it, in its exceeding brightness 
stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And you looked, or as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. What is the stone carved out without hands? Christ is building his kingdom and his kingdom will destroy every earthly kingdom that sets itself up and exalts itself against God. Amen. It, it is happening right now. Jesus told his disciples, the kingdom of God, what? Comes not with observation. Everybody wanted to know when Jesus was going to establish his earthly kingdom. Jesus said, I'm already establishing it. And you don't see it. But blessed are your eyes, for they have seen, and your ears, for they have heard. Verse 43 of that same passage in Daniel Daniel chapter 2. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. These mighty earthly powers will try and marry. They'll try and, and, and gather up strength together. Surely there's strength in numbers. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut out from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. What does that mean? God keeps his promises. We looked at that this morning. God keeps his promises. He is sovereign over the kingdoms of this world. And we need to know that. We need to know it. Number two, point number two, the commendation. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Jesus is telling the church in Pergamon, I know where you live. The idea here is intimate knowledge of our status and condition. J.K. Beale in his commentary on this passage says this, as in Smyrna, Satan is named as the ultimate, ultimate instigator of persecution. The throne of Satan in Pergamum is a way of referring to that city as a center of Roman government and pagan religion in the Asia Minor region. It was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to a Roman ruler, Augustus, and the capital of the whole area for the cult of the emperor. The city proudly referred to itself as the, quote, temple warden, unquote, of a temple dedicated to Caesar worship. Life in such a political religious center put all the more pressure on the church to pay public homage to Caesar as a deity refusal of which meant high treason to the state. And here is the problem for the church of Pergamum. There could be no peaceful coexistence. Jesus says, I know where you live. And where you live is Satan's throne. Ever want to move away? Ever there was a reason to move? Jesus says, I know where you live. And where you live is the heart of Satan's kingdom. The heart of Satan's rule in this world. There could be no peaceful coexistence. Second Corinthians 6 verse 14 reminds us, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols. 
for we are the temple of the living God. Jesus in the um, Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 12 or 17, excuse me, this is praying to the Father, and we have this inside look at this intimate conversation between the Father and the Son as Jesus is about to ascend the cross. And what does Jesus pray for his people? He said in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Isn't that what we want sometimes, just to get away? You not think the church in Pergamum wanted to get away? He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from what? The evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What is the key for you and I to sustain our faithfulness and our testimony in this world of which we are in, but not of? Did you see it? Jesus said to the Father, keep them with the truth. Sanctify them with the truth. What is the truth? His word. The key to sustaining a life that is pleasing to God in a wicked and forward generation, such as what we live in right now, to be in this world but not of it is to anchor ourselves to God's word. That is our encouragement. That is what will keep us. That is what will sanctify us. You see, the context of the church in Pergamos was summed up by the bumper sticker that we see everywhere. Coexist. You ever seen it? Spelled out in all the different religious symbols. What is that message? We like to think that it's a peaceful um, e pluribus unum message. And this was the essence of the message that the church of Pergamum sat under. And you know what it said? It said you could worship Caesar. You could worship um, Zeus. You could worship Athena, goddess of war. You could worship Demeter, sister of Zeus, goddess of agriculture. You could worship Dionysus. Son of Zeus, God of nature, by the way, he's still worshiped today. I submit to you the environmental movement, earth worship. You could worship any one of these, or you could worship Christ. But don't you dare say Christ is supreme. Don't you dare say it, because Caesar was Lord to them. And so here are Christians who are living in a pluralistic society just like us. We talked about this Wednesday night. The real life-changing message that people need to hear is what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Zeus, Demeter, Dionysus. No. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And we would hear that's not inclusive. Well, it's inclusive to those that believe. It is inclusive to those that have ears to hear and eyes to see. But guess what? It is not pluralistic. And therefore, for the Christian in the church of Pergamon to hold up the supremacy of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ above everything else, was a death sentence in that culture. Because it hurt feelings. It stepped on their gods. 
what did David do to the spoils of war when they captured it and it was an idol? What did they do? They melted it down. The question that was before the church in Pergamum and I think applicable to us today is who is supreme? Who is supreme? Is Christ just one of many gods or is he supreme king? How we answer that means everything. Jesus said, I know where you live and it's at Satan's throne. I want you to see that the the adversary's area of rule is limited. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through two, a passage we know well. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following what? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince there is the word archon or ruler. It's used in many cases in scripture as earthly rulers, but here it's used as Satan is a ruler or a prince who exercises power. The word in the Greek is exousia, the right to exercise authority. What what Paul is saying is Satan is currently exercising authority and actively working in the children of disobedience. Satan has an area of rule, an area of domain, And for a time, he has allowed this. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. By the way, Revelation 20 is probably the most controversial chapter in the entire book. Where we get into the discussion of the thousand years. I will not tip my hand until we get to Revelation chapter 20. So that's 18 chapters away. So you're going to have to come back. But he said, he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Go down to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What is the ultimate destiny of the enemy of our souls? Lake of fire. Lake of fire. He knows it. He knows his days are numbered. And what is he doing now? He is gathering all of his his energy, all of his strength to oppose the church. In Isaiah 27, verse 1, Isaiah says this, In that day, the Lord with his heart, with his hand, excuse me, in that day, the Lord with his heart and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Imagery there, right? But Isaiah is predicting exactly what I just read from you in Revelation 20, that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Why is that important to the church of Pergamon? Because right now, today, as they were reading that letter, they were under fire because they were at Satan's doorstep. Satan, though temporarily exercising authority to blind minds, has been limited and his days are numbered. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we find in in their case, the God of this world had blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I remember um, I was struggling as a teenager, probably 15, 16 years old, and 
I remember this conversation with with uh, my dad, and he was talking to me about the spiritual battle that I was beginning to understand as a teenager, but not really grasping. And he, in typical fashion, my dad always did. He reminded me that Satan was just a dog on a chain. What do you mean, Dad? He exercises authority over those within his reach, within the grasp or the radius of the chain. But for the believer, he is just a barking dog. He's a barking dog without a bite because we are out of his reach. Say, well, what about the church in Pergamum? He's talking about Antipas, who was murdered by Satan. How could we say that they were out of Satan's reach? Because Satan lost. He could not have the soul of Antipas. What did Jesus say about fearing those that can kill the body? Don't fear them. But fear them that can kill both body and soul. Who has the authority over the soul? Not Satan. But for the unbeliever, they're within the reach of his chain. He is a, a powerful, powerful enemy that blinds the minds of the unbelievers. And you and I were there. We used to be within the reach of his chain. But now for you and I as Christians, as children of God, we have been taken from this, the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. He's just a barking dog now. And his days are numbered. The commendation concludes with this statement. He says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Who is Antipas? Well, that's a mystery. If you do, if you do some research on Antipas, he is mentioned in Scripture all of one time. Now, we talked about Polycarp last week. Remember Polycarp? He was the Bishop of Smyrna, the Elder of Smyrna. There's a lot more history, a lot more church history about Polycarp, but not, not here for Antipas. And it's noteworthy that virtually nothing is known about the man. There is, there's conjecture and there are different stories that you can read. Some, some people conjectured that Antipas was put inside the belly of a bronze bull that was hollowed out, that was used in the worship of those gods, perhaps Zeus, in this city, and was burned alive, basically baked inside the belly of this bull. But that's conjecture. We don't have it on good authority from church historians. I'm thinking about this. Why does Christ mention Antiphos? We get nothing other than an honorable mention here. But it's quite a mention. It's a reminder to us that here is a man that did not bow his knee. I was thinking about 1 Kings chapter 19 after the great showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Remember Elijah flees to the wilderness? Because after this incredible exercise of courage where he confronts 400 prophets of Baal, and all of Israel looking down on him because at that point in time, God was not the God that Israel worshipped. And so here is Isaiah, a man by himself against 400 prophets of Baal. He stands up to them and he mocks them publicly. And you know the story. God miraculously demonstrates his power and all 400 prophets of Baal are executed by Elijah. And then we find Elijah, in typical human, humanity fashion, goes into a bout of depression. You ever notice that after great spiritual highs, boy, the drop-off is just right like that. And we find Elijah in a cave wanting to die because nobody loves the Lord. I'm the only one left. And you remember what God told Elijah? Elijah... There are 7,000 who have not bailed, bowed the knee to Baal. You don't know their names. And that's the key here I want you to see. Antipas, we don't know him. 
It's important to note what's not said about Antipas. We don't need, and I want you to understand this, we don't need to be famous for God to know our name. Do you hear that? We don't need to be famous for God to know our name. Isaiah 49, verse 13, it says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought I'm in obscure western North Carolina, Wilkesboro, North Carolina, maybe North Wilkesboro, maybe whatever little community that you might live in, Perlier, fill in the blank with yours. Maybe God's forgotten about me. And he says in verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child? Now that would be pretty hard, wouldn't it, moms? But it could be done. We've certainly seen it. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Who is no name Antipas to us? He's nobody. But you know what? God didn't forget him. One of the the very interesting things I find about Antipas is that nobody knew anything about him. There were people there that certainly knew him. But for us, we know nothing about him other than the fact that the scripture says he is my faithful witness. What else matters about him? Would you be content to be known as God's faithful witness? Could there be anything better? We don't need to be famous for God to know our name. Of all the things Antipas did in his life, The thing that is remembered and recorded for us in Scripture is how he finished. That's important. He was a faithful witness to the end. In Hebrews chapter 11, we know the chapter very well. We call it the faith chapter. Verse 32, and what more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets. All of these, by the way, were famous because we we read of them. We study them. But then he goes further, verse 33, he through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women, no names, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others, no names. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They, no names, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, all of these no names, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What, what is that talking about? Jesse took us through that. That is the resurrection of the dead, in which they will be given new bodies. And when will that happen? All these people that went through all of that, that will happen when we're all together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside. This is what this means for us. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The encouragement to me this morning, as I think about the unknown Antipas, is to finish the race well, as we serve in anonymity. By God's grace, let us finish strong. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we leave here today, we thank you for the time that we've had in your word this morning. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to be faithful. Father, we understand that we can't stand in our own strength, and we desperately need to be maintained and sustained in this world to not be absorbed by it and part of it. We ask for your sustaining grace. We ask that you would keep this church family close to your word this week. Father, that we would be sanctified and kept by it as we go about the various places that we must go. Keep us, Lord, and we ask that you would sanctify us in your truth and keep us faithful to the end. We ask these things in your name. Amen.